Parents, buckle up. I know it's a very compelling thing to watch me rearrange in the stage every Sunday. I need to get a little just like a music stand with just a little coffee warmer so I can just set my cup right and say I'd just spill it. But uh, let's, uh, let's pray in, in preparation for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, be with us this morning. Be with us as... As we're uh, as we're in your presence, Lord, as as um, as we're we're here to be with you, to worship you, to to hear your voice, to know you uh, just more and more uh, in everything that we do. I pray for your grace. I pray for your your presence. Um, I pray that you would speak through me, and that it would be your words, not mine, uh, that that uh, come out of my mouth, Lord, that anything that is of me, anything that is me, that you would just take it and, and set it aside so it wouldn't get in the way of, of the gospel this morning, that it wouldn't get in the way of, of your spirit moving in the lives of the folks who are here. I pray that you'd be with the people who are here, Lord, that, that you would touch their hearts, that you would pull the, the, uh, pull the ground up, Lord God, that you would till it and break hearts, that you would prepare us to hear your word, Lord, that that um, the breaking of, of hard ground wouldn't be a, a thing that happens for our suffering and for our unhappiness or, or anything else, but rather, Lord, that that the breaking of hard hearts, the, the tilling of the soil, um, Lord God, that you would do it as a way of uh, as a way of glorifying you, Lord God. We know that you um, that you resist the proud, that you that you uh, push back against those that seek self-aggrandizement, Lord God, but that you give grace to the humble. And I pray that you would make us humble, um, that we might hear your gospel, that we might hear you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I was on, hey Titus, sit up. I was on vacation this last week, and uh, my my family and I uh, went and we visited with a friend of mine who was on sabbatical in the Dakotas, uh, Denver Burns. And actually, I'm going to steal a little bit of something that I got from him in the sermon, but I will give you credit. I'll give him credit when I get there. Uh, but Denver, um, yeah, they were they were in the Dakotas, so we went to visit. And my wife and I have been there. We've gone to Mount Rushmore. We had I don't think we went to Devil's Tower before. Uh, so we went to Devil's Tower, which which uh, um, was was pretty interesting. Um, and, and so we did all of this traveling. And one of the one of the cool things about driving around the middle of the country over there is uh, the recurring sign. Do you know the sign I'm talking about? Wall drug. I uh, I grew up in a military family. I have lived uh, in 16 different states. Uh, I I lived in you know the West Coast, the South, or the East Coast, the South. Briefly lived on the West Coast. I, I've been kind of everywhere, man. And, and uh, I will tell you, you do encounter wall drug signs in Florida. Uh, apparently, there's a spot where you can scuba dive and see a wall drug sign. The, the, there are 3,000 of these things, 3,000 wall drug signs in the world. Furthest one away is actually in China. Um, and, and I guess this started during World War II. Because uh, like, the, the drugstore itself was founded in 31. 
And uh, as a whim, they started putting out, you know, they put out a signed advertising that made an impact. And they thought, well, if one sign does this much, what if we make a, you know, 100? And uh, during World War II, this became a thing where soldiers would put them on tanks. Uh, I've seen photos of wall drug signs on tanks, which I assume, I don't know. I <laughs> but they're, they're everywhere. And it's kind of a joke, right? Like everywhere you go, like if you travel and you go to a tourist spot, you will see... X number of miles to wall drugs and free ice, I think, because that was their big thing in the great. No, Titus, go, go, go sit. Sit in the back with mom. Um, they would give out free ice and water. And you can still get free ice water, um, it, which is kind of neat. But like, so wall drug, I, I was talking with my friend Denver about it. And he did go and see wall drug for the first time while they were traveling. He said, you know, it's an interesting thing. You see signs everywhere you go. You see signs, you know, on the side of the road, you see them on the highway, you see them, you know, in different parts of the country, everywhere. And when you finally get there, it is kind of terrible. Like, it's a huge letdown. It is amongst the most touristy things in the entire world. Have any of y'all been? And it really is just super touristy. They sell junk, and they sell this, and they sell that. I don't... I, I. it's cool to be able to see you've gone. It's cool to buy a bumper sticker uh, and all that other stuff. But, like, it's a letdown. And and as we dive into the text today, we're actually going to summarize. We're going to tie the last few sermons together uh, into a nice package. And um, as we do so, uh, I, I want to I wanna talk about all of these miracles and signs that we have associated with Jesus in these moments, and they're all pointing forward to something significant. But it's sort of the anti-wall drug. Everybody got it? Like, the wall drug signs make wall drugs sound awesome. They present wall drug in a light that is absolutely unrealistic and unreasonable. And, like, just, it's a, it's a whole lot of build-up and a whole lot of nothing like an Indiana Jones movie released after three, like lots of excitement, not good. Um, But with Jesus, like what we get is we get sign after sign after sign, but they're not advertisements. They're just Jesus being Jesus. And in the process of Jesus being Jesus, we're shown who he is. God perfectly reveals himself in Christ. And when we encounter him, when we come to know him, he is the opposite of wall drug. He is the opposite of a trap, of, of an advertising scam, of, of whatever. Like, like he is more than you could ever hope to encounter. And so we're going to dive into like just this summary and we're going to look at this idea in this series of texts like what we have is Jesus presenting signs that he is God that he is our high priest, and that he is the king that God has sent into the world to save us. I, uh, I'm not sure. I think it was Martin Luther who first coined the idea of prophet, priest, and king. And there's a bit of a, a parallel there um, in what we're going to be looking at, if you want to bump my slide forward. Um, real quick, Mark's gospel. This is Peter's gospel. It's Peter's account of everything that happened, um, written to Gentiles. Uh, but there is a huge Jewish flavor uh, in the very same way as I try sometimes to form my sermons to speak to farm and ranch folks, but there ain't no way around the fact that I ain't a farmer or a rancher. 
And so, like, even when I tell things in Farmer Ranch, like, cultural narrative, it's not very much, right? Like, I'm, I still got a whole lot of, like, Midwest, East Coast, um, you know, culture in me. And so, uh, you know, Peter does this. There's a lot of Jewishness in his gospel, despite the fact that he's writing to Gentile converts. And so, um, that is Mark's gospel, uh, prophet, priest, and king. The idea here is that Jesus shows up and he holds multiple significant, like the big offices in Jewish culture. Like if you were going to rise up and hold a high position in the Jewish world in the ancient period, right? Like king is it. But high priest is way up there, right? And the king, in theory, didn't do stuff without the high priest along. In fact, actually, that was the last straw for Saul, is that he didn't wait for the high priest slash prophet to show up. He sacrificed before a battle, and God's like, all right, well, look, you didn't wait. You didn't trust me enough to wait. You didn't trust me enough to believe that I was in control without a sacrifice or with a sacrifice. I'm done with you. And um, finally, prophet were people who, like, spoke on God's behalf. And Jesus stands in all three spots, and it's huge. Um, and we're going to get into that a little bit as we go, and, and maybe more so in the deep dive, like the, the nuts and bolts of the idea. But here's the story so far. It's kind of the adventures with Jesus cycle, where we've got this teaching section, like parables, and then we've got all these little stories of Jesus going out and doing stuff um, and performing miracles. And these are all, like, not wall drug signs. I don't want to say it that way. These are, like, hello, my name is, almost. You know what I'm talking about? You get those, like, little... Name text, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya or Eric or whatever. Um, and, and in these instances, what we're seeing is, hello, my name is God. Hello, my name is the perfect, the promised prophet, the great prophet that Moses talked about. And everybody's waiting for like this guy to show up. Like Jesus is basically switching name tags to these different roles as these miracles happen. And so, um, real quick, we, we have it where he's in a boat, and there's a huge storm, and the boat's going to sink, and, like, Jesus is sleeping, and the disciples are freaking out, and they're like, hey, wake up, wake up, wake up. And Jesus is like, what? Hey, stop, be quiet. And he qualms the storm. And he says to the disciples, well, why didn't you trust me? And then they get to shore, and he casts the demon out of a, out of a Gentile man. He casts legion like the, the thousands of demons, I guess, that were in this man. Like, like he frees him. And then he lands and he goes to heal J- Jairus' daughter. He probably even pronounced it right, which is extra impressive. Um, but he goes to heal this guy's daughter. And on the way, he's touched by this bleeding woman. And she's instantly healed. And like over the last few weeks, we've sort of like tried to chew all the meat off the bone with these. And I didn't want to lose the big picture in the midst of all of this detail. Right, and so then finally the last one, he raises Jairus's Jairus, his daughter to life after she has died, and so we're going to look at we're going to look at how he is God, how he is the high priest that God has sent, the last high priest. Which, if you want to learn more about that, read the book of Hebrews. It is all about the perfect and last high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice, and how God the King has come. So. Diving in here, Jesus demonstrates he is God. So this is the name tag or the sign, this way to God, right? You know, God is here. And first off, in the ancient world, there are a handful of miracles that, like, Jewish people believed only God is capable of doing. Everybody with me? 
Like only God could do that. Only God could command the weather, for example. And so when they're in the boat and Jesus says, be quiet, and the storm calms. And when we dug into that, we talked about how he used sort of exorcism language. He controlled it with his voice, like the evil like forces of this world. He bound them back. And we talked about how in the book of Genesis, when God sets, like creates the world and sets the water behind boundaries, that he's able to control that. And this is seen as like an act of God, the ability to control the waters, to control the weather, to control all of this stuff. Only God can do that. And so when the disciples, like they're afraid of drowning, right? They're in the boat and they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to drown. And... Jesus gets up and he commands the storm to stop. And then they're even more afraid. And they're like, who is this guy? He has godlike powers, which it's not godlike powers. It is God's powers. And so, like, he has commanded the weather, which is something only God can do. Um, I didn't include it in my list, but I do want to touch on it. When he lands on the shore, when he lands on the shore, the demoniac, like this demon-possessed guy shows up and says, hey, you're the son of the Most High God, right? You are the son of the Most High. Like, you are the son of God. Like, he identifies him, but then Jesus is able to command the demon to leave. By the way, this is my Denver moment, and I didn't catch this until he pointed it out. So what we learn about the demoniac, we jump to Mark uh, chapter 4, no, 5, which is, what? Uh, that's actually not the slide we're going to just next. I'm, I'm diverting slightly. This is a rabbit trail. I cut it and I changed my mind. So they are, it's night, it's storming. And like what we know of the demoniac, right, is that, um, all right, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs in the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Watch this. So this demon-possessed man is there. He's in the tombs. He's in this spot. And the storm calms. And it was so much. I mean, like, you ever been in... Like a heavy storm on a lake in a boat, like it's a lot. I mean, like like water can be pretty loud on its own waves and thunder and wind and all that other stuff. It's very loud. And so they're afraid of drowning, and then they're afraid, like, who is this Jesus guy? And I can only imagine that as they're discussing it, and the calm sets on the sea across the water, because sound carries across water, don't it? Suddenly they hear a man crying and howling in the dark on the shore in the direction of where they're heading. And you got to think, uh, what now? What's going on over there? But they are with, they're with God. Like they're with the biggest, toughest, like most authoritative, powerful guy on the block. And it doesn't matter who this guy is. Jesus is able to go and like cast him out. Like it was one of the things that the um, Jews, the ancient Jews believed was that the messianic era would be marked that the Messiah would come and he would cast out demons. Why? Because he has authority. Because he is, they didn't actually believe the Messiah would be God. Um, and they were shocked when it ended up being that way. Because the Messiah shows up and he's God. And with this authority, with this power of God, he acts and casts out this demon. Um, and then finally, if we jump to Mark, 
5, 40 to 42. Since I've preached on these so many times, it'd be really easy for me to not read them. And I don't want to do that because I feel like it's kind of illegitimate to not read the text. Sorry. Uh, and I've beaten these texts to death to a degree. I am not sorry about that. There's so much good stuff there. Um, so he shows up and they say, and says to the mourners, like, why are you guys crying? And they, they're like, well, you know, there's a dead person. He's like, ah, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. Their mourning is turned to laughter. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and the mother and those who were with him, and they went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And told them to give her something to eat. Now watch this. Um, he does the anti-wall drug because he performs a miracle. And it is a miracle that only God can do. In Jewish belief system, only God had authority over life and death. Only God could raise the dead. Only God could authorize such a thing. Only God could make those things happen. Could bring around about life in the first place. And in fact... Um, ancients believed that even if you had a child, it was always a gift from God. And it was God who decided whether or not you had a child, right? And whether it was a girl or a boy or... So, you, you know, like all of these things were all in God's hands. And so when they learned, like, oh my gosh, you raised a man from the dead, or you raised this little girl from the dead, this is something that only God can do. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because it's easy as we dig through these texts, because we've gotten into the nuts and bolts and the culture and the, the, the miracle, and like with the, Tabitha, or the Talitha Kumi miracle here, the little girl and the, and the bleeding woman, we looked at these things and we saw that um, these were people who were desperate and they're bowing before him and they're falling before him, they're humbling themselves and like they're out of hope and they're desperate and they're asking God for a miracle and he provides it. And we've talked about how God provides for our needs, but it's important to back up and look at the big picture and realize like this series of miracles is Jesus demonstrating that he's God. It's, it's not just wall drug signs. It is just God is here. Look, this is God. This is God. This is a person who stepped into our world. God stepped into flesh. He is one of us. He is God incarnate, and we can know him, and we can encounter and interact with him. And there's cool stuff that goes with that. Because, like, for example, the phrase that is there in Aramaic basically means, you know, little lamb, arise. And it's like this gentleness, and we can see God's gentleness in him. When we see Christ angry at the pharisees when like they're mad at him for like well hey do we do good or do evil and they're like well i'm not answering that it's a trick he's like are you serious you won't even answer this question he heals the guy to demonstrate that he can but he gets angry why because god gets angry in response to like our hard heart sometimes we see his passion we see his like heart we see his desire to raise up his disciples we see all of these things and what we get in this then is a picture of who God is. And so you can say, well, I want to know God. How do you know God? You get to know Jesus. You sit down and you read. You, you reflect. You look at how he interacted with different situations. You look at his passion. You look at the fact that he dies for our sins. And so like Paul says, when I was God's enemy, when I was dead in my trespasses and sin, literally when I hated God, Christ died for me. 
And so God loves you that much. And so like when you doubt or when you fear or when you think that God is angry at you all the time or that nothing's ever going to be right, you can back up and say, Christ died for me when I was horrible. He took punishment for my sins when I hated him just to save me. And he did it for, quite honestly, he did it for all y'all. So he did it for John and he did it for um, Josh back there in the sound booth. He did it for Carly. He did it for all of us. And so when I look at my brothers and sisters, I know that's somebody Christ died for and I need to love them. I need to be like Christ in my compassion. And so him demonstrating that he is God, this is the first thing that is huge about this because it is literal signs that God has come. Like actual concrete evidence and signs that Christ was God. The second thing that we encounter in these texts is that he is our high priest. Now, there's some important stuff to understand in the Jewish world here. In the Old Testament, they had a whole sacrificial system. And the way this worked was, in order to be right before God, your sin had to be cleansed. And it was cleansed through sacrifice. And you would sacrifice different things for different times and different kinds of uncleanliness and all of this. And, like, we look at that and we're like, well, wait a minute. Like, how does chopping up a lamb really save me from my sins? And ultimately what we find out from uh, from Paul later is, hey, you know what? The blood of bulls and goats and, and lambs and all this other stuff doesn't actually give us the remission of sins. It doesn't forgive us. It is all pointing forward to Jesus. Because when Jesus dies for our sins, when he takes the weight of our wickedness on himself, we're forgiven. It's always foreshadowing. It's always the wall drug sign way, way, way out there, like, you know, several thousand years before Jesus was even born. Um, But it's always pointing forward to him. But, like, in the process, so what you would do then is you would... Um, sanctify things you would make things holy by the shedding of blood because when the curse is handed down eve eats the fruit she's commanded don't eat from that tree over there and she does um and when she eats of the fruit of the tree of good the knowledge of good and evil like she eats this piece of fruit like like god says well when it happens you will die and they don't die right away but they die spiritually they're disconnected from god and so death is that consequence but ultimately they never would have died physically All death is a product of the fall, which is awful. That's part of the reason, like, we're designed to live forever. It's part of the reason when people die, we look at it and we're like, yeah, that ain't right. There's something wrong here. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so, like, that death, that payment is how holiness is achieved. And so, like, you see it with Adam and Eve right away. The first thing, God brings them out of the garden and he kills animals, and covers them with their skins, which is like the first sacrifice, really. Like this death to cover their shame. And like, like so this is the idea here. So there's, there's this whole holiness and, and sin and the shedding of blood and everything else that's associated with it. And we're going to read Mark 5, 21 to 24. Hoping I'm not biting off more than I can chew in the allotted time. There's no allotted time. I talk as long as I want. Um, Chapter 5, if you've got a Bible, uh, you can read along there. 5, 21. And then Jesus crossed again to the boat to the... I'm sorry, let me jump ahead here. I didn't mean to start right in the middle of verse 1. Uh, 21. Oh, actually, it should be further ahead than 21. I'm sorry, my slides are awful. Or my... Uh, anyway. And he went with him, meaning Jairus. 
And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard reports of Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. It's significant. We're going to come back to that in a minute. For she said, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt that her body, in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, on the week that we did this, we talked about it in depth. A woman in the ancient Jews, like they would look at a woman who was on her period, and they would say, well, she is unclean, ceremonially unclean, until it was over and she'd been ritualistically cleansed. If a man touched a woman who was on her period, he would become unclean too. And so, like, there's this whole thing where, like, contact with and everything else. And so this woman, having been, you know, basically bleeding for 12 years, is a social outcast. And she comes into the group, is in the crowd, is touching everybody along the way so that she can touch Jesus. Now, we talked at the time about this idea that, like, leaders and famous people had an aura about them that might be able to heal you. But we're going to jump to the book of Exodus, chapter 29. And we're going to have a look at this, because this is fun. There's two Old Testament texts we're going to touch on here. Um, So this is um, God commanding, like, how parts of the tabernacle, parts of the mobile temple and the sacrifices and all this would work. And starting in verse 35, thus... You shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Meaning they're sacrificing these animals to purify these guys who are going to be the priests, the high priest and the other priests. So like you're purifying them every day for seven days by sacrificing a bull. Also, you shall purify the altar. This is important. When you make atonement for it, you shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Watch this. The most holy. Meaning... Like, when they build the temple, it becomes the holy of holies, where they would only go in there once a year and only after doing a whole mess of stuff to purify and cleanse and prepare. And they would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And, like, through that sacrifice, the nation would be cleansed of their sins. But anything that touches the altar, when the tabernacle, the tent temple, is there, anything that touches the altar is made holy. Why? Because... Holiness is like a consuming fire, right? Like it cleanses by eating. Like fires don't just stop. They continue and they consume. And so this woman, having touched Christ, the most holy son of God, is cleansed. Because Christ, like, has come to offer himself. He has come to put himself out there and to be the sacrifice for our sins and coming into contact with, with that most holy sacrifice, with the Lamb of God that would be sacrificed, she is made clean. And we've talked about this a little bit in other spots. Having, like, Jesus heals the demon-possessed guy. He's unclean in every way possible. He casts the unclean spirit out of him. And the guy is converted and wants to become a disciple, but he can't yet. 
Um, and then we see where he does it with this woman, where she touches him and she is made clean. And then finally he touches the little girl and brings her to life. And she is made clean. Because anything and everything that comes into contact with Christ, like if we come to know him, if we are in him, if we are brought in and like covered by the blood of, of Christ, we are made clean. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you've rebelled, how you've sinned, what kind of dirty, like, like ness, dirtiness, like filth or whatever you have on your soul, it is made clean. That's why Isaiah says that uh, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as the snow. Or as far as the east is the w- from the west, so far as God removed his sin from me. Like we are made clean through knowing Christ because he is our high priest who comes and offers himself as a sacrifice. He is, the, he is our representative when it comes to our sin before God. He goes before God and having offered himself, we're forgiven. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to touch on briefly here, we're going to jump to Numbers 15. I'm only doing it because I think it's kind of cool. Uh, numbers 15, and we're going to look at 37. It's a little bit after Exodus. Uh, so it's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Um, so they Jews had all of these different things that they did. They had certain animals they couldn't eat. And you couldn't wear a cloth, clothing of mixed fibers. And you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that. And you had to wear something like this and like that. All of these things, all of these weird little reminders exist, not because eating shellfish is sinful, but because shellfish are an in-between animal and they're being reminded, hey, don't, eat, don't be a mix. You are Jews. Do not be like the world. Don't, you know, don't like, like adopt their way of doing things. Don't like take on their sins. Don't take on their religious practices. All of these things, you are supposed to be set apart and different and of one type, um, you know, because, well, the example, of course, with food would be like catfish. You can't eat catfish. Why? Because they don't have scales. They have skin, right? And because they have skin, they are a little like a land animal, but they're definitely a fish. And so because they're in the middle, you don't do that because you have to be separate. The clothing of one type of fabric. Why? Because you aren't a Canaanite and a Jew. You're a Jew, Right? Like, we are kind of under the same thing where we are um, we are in Christ and we're not of the world. We're supposed to remember, I am in Christ and Christ alone. The tassels on the garments are a reminder. They're, all of these laws are reminders about who God is. And so when he tells them, uh, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout the generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after the heart and your own eyes, which were afflicted, were inclined to whore after, excuse me. Uh, I lost my train of thought there. Um, And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember to and do all of my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, and I brought you out of the land of Egypt 
and your God, uh, to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, this tassel is there. It's to remind you of the Ten Commandments. And it's also to remind you that God brought you out of Egypt and he was your God. Um, every morning they would say this prayer, the Shema. And it included that last line. And part of the deal was you would look at these tassels on your clothes and you would remember, oh, yeah, the Lord God brought us out of Egypt. He is our God. There is no other God. And you would look at that and you remember, like, oh, yeah, i got to follow the commandments. In theory, like, we have stuff like that, right? Like, I'm not wearing my wedding ring because I've gotten fat and my knuckles keep swelling up. Um, it's, you know, I haven't gotten it resized yet, and I'm in trouble already for that. But I'm sitting in front of the church, and I'm really sorry that I own my wedding ring on. But ideally, I would look at my wedding ring on a regular basis and say, oh, yeah, I'm married. I have to act like this is important. I have to live this way. I have to pursue my wife. I belong to her. Mine actually says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, which is from the book of uh, Song of Solomon. And it's a reminder, I belong to my wife. I'm not my own. And vice versa. She has the same ring. Um, Those tassels are there. Obey the commandments. But the blue string is weird. And I started researching this because I could not figure out what the blue string is for. Then I figured out, watch this, um, The tabernacle, which they would travel around in the desert with, had blue strings in different spots on the edges. And, like, I read an article arguing that it's a reminder to all Jewish people, they have this blue string, is to remind them that they're to be a nation of priests belonging to God, like nobility before God, a nation of priests. So when she comes up and she touches the hem of his robe, the fringe is what she touches, the Ten Commandments and the blue string... She is touching the reminder that they belong to God and that she is brought out of the land of Egypt so that he can be her God. And she is living in exile from her own community, and she's brought back. And she's brought back by the blood of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, of Christ. And it is a sign that she touches, a reminder. She reaches out to the reminder, and it heals her. It makes her clean. And for all of us, this is a thing we come back to. We are made clean by Christ. We are made whole by Christ because he is our high priest. Last bit here that we're going to touch on is this idea that Jesus is our king. He has this authority that comes with him. And like, again, as he's coming ashore and this legion comes out, he's able to command legion to leave. Hey, get out of here because he's king. He can do what he wants, right? I could. I, I yelled at my child a little while, and he didn't listen to me earlier, right? Um, if I yell at other people's kids, they're not probably not going to listen to me either. Why? Because I don't really have all that much authority. Like, I don't. <laughs> um, Christ himself had authority that came from God, and spirits obeyed him. Actually, ultimately, we will all kneel before him. When Christ casts or brings Jairus' daughter to life, he demonstrates that he has authority over life and death. But beyond that, there's this parallel that happens. So remember, we looked at that healing, and I touched on this last time I was here, and I'm just touching on it again because it's awesome, but also because it's a big deal. Because what Jesus did was he did a healing where he chased everyone out of the room, and he used the phrase, Talitha, little lamb, arise, Talitha kumi, which is what P- 
Peter. So we're jumping to Acts chapter 9. And Peter is brought to heal this woman, Dorcas, whose name is Tabitha. Like most ancients have multiple names. It's a whole weird thing. I don't want to get into it. Um, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Um, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. So what Peter does here, and we talked about this at length. If you want to jump back two weeks in the online sermons or the the podcast thingy or whatever, the like you can listen to the, the details because there's like a million little parallels that are in here. And why did Peter parallel Jesus in this moment? Because Jesus is king. And this is his kingdom expanding. It is his kingdom going everywhere, right? Um, I, I know it's usually used in a negative connotation, but if you add yeast to a, a lump of dough, but just part of the lump, what happens? It goes everywhere, right? If I spit in my, you know, one of my kids' water, I just spit in that part of the water. Nope, it's everywhere, right? Like, it's the whole thing. In the same way, when Christ comes into the world, it's a little like D-Day, where he lands and it all spreads, and it goes further and further and further from generation to generation to generation. And eventually, like this group of a few hundred people in the book of Acts in the beginning becomes all of like Rome converts. And the church expands bigger and bigger and like, like reaches into the billions. And it is amazing because Christ, this invasion, this authority as king, he demonstrates Peter duplicates it. And Peter exerts the authority of King Jesus in raising this girl from, or this old woman from the dead, Tabitha. And he does it in the same way. Why? Because we're supposed to see this. Number one, he was trained to do it that way. But number two, because we see it and we realize he's acting on Jesus' behalf. He's Jesus' representative in this moment because Jesus is king. Like this whole series of miracles, why are they there? Well, they're signs. And in the next little bit here, by the way, I'm going to say this again because I think it's awesome, and I'm super excited. I'd never noticed it before. But the very next thing Jesus, Peter does is he is sent by the Holy Spirit to Caesarea by the sea. And I, I've been there. Like, it, the ruins are still impressive, but, like, the original is, you know, was, would have been incredible. It's, like, one of the wealthiest cities in the entire country. And Caesarea by the sea was a completely, like, Gentile area. You would never go there because it was unclean. And the people were unclean. And Peter gets this vision where he sees animals, and God says, eat them all. And Peter's like, I can't eat the unclean animals. I'm Jewish. And God says, nope, what I make clean is clean, just like... Just like the little girl, just like the demoniac, just like the like all of these things. And so that cleanliness spreads because all of those things were about Christ's kingship. And here we're going to see God's kingdom expand. Actually, uh, Jesus says it this way. It's kind of interesting. He says, um, I have sheep in other fields that you don't know about. Right? Mormons take that and say, oh, that's America. It's not actually that. It's about the Gentiles who Jesus sends Peter to go and convert to bring in. And so these guys convert, and it grows the kingdom. His authority, his influence, it expands and continues to expand. Why? Because he is king. Um, in these texts, like when we experience difficulty, like how do we, what do we do with this? First off, we need to understand that Jesus being prophet, priest, king, like king, 
you know, being the, the representative on behalf of our sins, like, like being, um, you know, all of these things. Jesus is everything we need. He is God. He is the source of our holiness. He guides the steps that we take. He watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads without the will of the Father in heaven. Like, he is everything. He's authority all over all of creation. In fact, all of creation, like everything was created through him and by him. Like, Christ is in this position where, if I'm depressed, I can turn to Christ. I'm laying in bed and thinking about sin that I've committed or sin that's committed against me or, or things that are out of my control and I don't understand or whatever. Any of y'all ever do that, sit up half the night, just stuck? I've done a lot lately. That belongs to Christ. And if I'm wrestling with those things in my own flesh and not bringing it to Jesus and saying, you have everything I need for this situation, if I'm not turning to him and looking and saying, how are you going to handle this, Jesus? What are you going to do? I'm trying to carry it on my own. Christ's authority over all of creation like, means that we can seek him out and rely on him for everything. It means that when I... I means that when I need guidance as to how to parent my children, because they don't listen to me sometimes, I know it's shocking, I can go to Christ. When I get up in the morning and I'm moody, I'm trying to do this thing right now where I'm trying not to complain, I'm trying to complain less. I'm doing this 30-day no complaining thing, and I'm supposed to wear a bracelet on my right hand, and when I complain once, I move it to the other hand, and I use that as my counter and my reminder. And you'll notice I'm not wearing it because I got up cranky, came to work cranky, started complaining about the kids, realized I was complaining about the kids, talked to my wife and tried to get her to let me off the hook for it. And she's like, no, that sounded like complaining to me. And so no, I lost it. Why? Because on my own, I'm going to complain. You know why? Psychological tricks don't work. Christ works. To go to him and say, God, let me appreciate the things that I have. And thank you even for the difficulties. Help me to pray for those who are frustrating to me. Help me to pray for those who are my enemies. And then ultimately I have to live in submission. Here's the deal. Kings expect that. Everybody got it? Kings expect that. They do. If they're king, they're number one. And we have to live in submission to Christ. But in living in submission to Christ, we get so much more. We're made whole and new and clean. We get something more in life. We get blessing and, and, and understanding and peace. I honestly, like, like I look at it, and every good thing that has ever come into my life is a product of Christ. I didn't woo my wife. She was, she was a gift from God. And I frequently think, oh, my Lord, how has she stayed married to me all this time? How does she put up with me? Because she was a gift from God. My kids are a gift from God. Life I have today, the opportunity to preach the gospel to y'all, like the opportunity to repent for my sins, it's all a gift from God. And living in submission to those things and not trying to do it on my own, but going to him in prayer, going to him and asking is everything. It is everything. That's why we do communion. Like this morning is the first Sunday of the month. I thought I would go shorter. I did not. We started late. Um, on the first Sunday of the month, we do communion. We take the bread and we take the juice and we consume them as a reminder that Christ died for us. And living for him means filling ourselves, every part of us, 
with him. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, as we take communion, as we break the bread, as we, as we drink the juice, this is a reminder that Christ, that the Son of God, that our high priest, that our prophet, I think we need one more for nursery. This high priest that we have, he has provided for our every need. He has provided for everything. We just have to pursue him the way we pursue like food and drink and oxygen. Let's pray and let's worship God with our, with our consumption of the, the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with us. I pray as we, as we take the bread this morning, as we 